0: On May 18, 1980, a catastrophic geologic event occurred. On May 18, 1980, a catastrophic geologic event occurred that not only shocked the world because of explosive power, but it challenged the way we think at the very foundation. That event was the eruption of Mount St. Helens um, 36 years ago now in uh, Washington State. Uh, I believe that the eruption of Mount St. Helens is the most significant geologic event of the 20th century. If we look back on the 20th century and think about it, it was really interesting. And uh, I think of it and I'm calling it Rosetta Stone for creation geology. How's that uh that for an interesting uh, title? Come with me and let's uh talk about and and relive the events of 36 years ago, and then um, let's take a look at the things the volcano did in very short order. It's almost a Ripley's, believe it or not, of geologic catastrophe. And then uh, let's apply what we have seen at Mount St. Helens to other geologic features of the earth, like Grand Canyon, coal layers, fossils, that type of thing. And then let's finally think about what the volcano says to us personally, you and me, about our view of the world around us, our view of ourselves, and even what uh, it suggests about our view of God. Hey, uh, I was out there uh, at Mount St. Helens, and I took this verse literally. Okay, come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. So, on the basis of that verse, I got my hiking boots on, and I went out there, and, uh, boy, what a desolation he has made in the earth. And, uh, Psalm 46, I think, kind of, uh, tells a story of a natural disaster, and, uh, the things we can learn. A key thought I want to bring up is Rosetta Stone. You know what the Rosetta Stone is. It was discovered in, uh, Egypt, and it was a stone that had three languages, uh, Greek, and um, it had uh, cuneiform and hieroglyphics, I believe. Those are the three languages. The hieroglyphics, the, the Egyptian language was extinct in our time, and uh, it allowed the whole language of Egyptian culture to be deciphered. And so all those records started uh, to be translated it's an extraordinary artifact there was a suppressed language the uh the roman empire basically after the battle of actium 31 bc stomped out the uh, egyptian language and uh suppressed it and it was lost okay uh clues for deciphering a new field of knowledge in that case it was uh um, he um egyptian history and uh, we can go to the volcano and uh, see these amazing things. Mount St Helen's is a rosetta stone, I believe, and uh it's a it's, there's an interesting scripture: Speak to the earth, and it will teach you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this uh, job twelve eight uh it's an uh incredible display, and uh if we learn and, and think and speak the language or the thought pattern that we, we get when we look at the earth, it will teach us. There's the way I remember Mount St. Helens before the eruption. 9,677 feet tall. A very beautiful mountain. Symmetrical in appearance. And it was uh, my favorite of all of the Cascade volcanoes there in Washington State. All that changed. Look at the forest around it. okay? And look at the beautiful lake. All that changed on the morning of May 18, 1980, as one-half cubic mile of summit slid away, the largest landslide in recorded history. It slid into the lake basin and uh, radically modified the landscape and released the pressure inside the volcano. And the volcano exploded and uh, delivered this uh, steam ex- uh, explosion, equivalent of 20 million tons of TNT, explosion energy. And uh, it was significant. And uh, there's the landscape. It leveled 150 square miles of landscape in about 10 minutes. And then uh, it caused this uh, wonderland for study of catastrophic process. Here's the volcano just minutes before it erupted. And here is a, a sequence of pictures that have been sequenced together to show you the collapse of the north face of the volcano. See what happens here. Okay, here we go. Okay, we morphed the the pictures. There it is five minutes before the eruption, and then the landslide begins. The whole north slope gives way. Oversteepened and cracked north slope starts collapsing, and in a matter of 50 seconds, this interval uh, is shot. There you see the steam jetting out from the center of the volcano as super hot liquid magma Flashed to steam. We had this gigantic steam explosion. The uh, landslide began probably with an earthquake. The earthquake launched the landslide. The landslide uncorked the and relieved the pressure inside and then it allowed the steam explosion to occur. There it is before the eruption from the northwest. Okay, take a look at that. Uh, that view exactly the same place after the eruption exactly the same place put the camera exactly where it was before the eruption there's the there's the the change uh... unbelievable if you think about it look at the foreground here how uh... that has uh... changed right here and look at the profile of the volcano look at this right here and that over there and this over here those two shoulders here it is before there it is before. And um notice the lowland uh, up front here. And of course, notice the summit. And then there it is after. Unbelievable change. One half cubic mile of summit and North Slope is gone. It's deposited out in the foreground. Uh, the forest was blasted off the ridge. That's before and after. Well, what we've seen at Mount St. Helens happened in broad daylight, and it allows uh, us to understand it a little bit. And so um, it's been simulated, and this is a simulation of the first 50 seconds. And it's got sound. Don't let that alarm you, but it's going to be an explosion. Rocks are going to be falling. But the first thing that happens is earthquake. It's a magnitude 5.1 earthquake. The earthquake dislodges the summit and north slope, In three rotational slides, the half cubic mile of of, uh, rock begins to slide. And then you can see the explosion and then the supersonic blast. Let's go through it here. Here it is, simulation of the first 50 seconds. Summit earthquake. Okay, rock avalanche rock avalanche. The avalanche fluidizes and becomes some kind of liquid. It flows over the landscape and then the cork is unstopped and the steam explosion occurs. The rain of rocks and then the supersonic blast that overtops the landslide material knocks down and toasts the forest And a lot of other things are going on. How did you like that simulation? Was that kind of good? Okay, I'll show it to you one more time. <laughs> this is great. We can replay it.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. Earth. No. Earthquake. Magnitude 5.1. The whole north slope is over steepened and cracked. It begins to slide. And then there is the, uh, the slumping. And then once the rocks are dispersed, it forms a liquefied kind of slurry. And then the pressure inside explodes. Super hot liquid water venting to the surface. And then the supersonic blast. And that knocked down the forest, uh, Farther away from the volcano. Not a good place to be standing on the morning of May 18th. Okay, events of May 18th. Okay, here they are. Earthquake, magnitude 5.1, directly under the summit as far as we can say. Um, what came first, the landslide or the earthquake? Did the landslide cause the earthquake? Did the earthquake cause the landslide? There's lots of things to talk about there. The debris avalanche, the rock slide, becomes dispersed in this gigantic avalanche. That's the way to say it, I guess. And then the steam explosion was behind it, equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT uh, explosion energy. Then we had the giant water wave. The landslide went into the lake and propelled the water of Spirit Lake there north of the volcano up to 860 feet above the pre-eruption level. The lake sloshed back into its new basin with 200 feet of landslide debris on the bottom of the lake. So the lake was in a new uh, area of space. It, was in, it, it now became, it, it's occupying what was sky before the eruption. Then the mud flows occurred and, and uh the heat and the intensity of the heat, especially around the north side of the volcano, melted snow and glacier ice and that quickly made mud flows. Mud flows were moving at about ninety miles per hour down at the flank of the mountain and, and uh these mud flows got started and went uh out of the crater area down the Tootle River fifty miles. Okay. More damage from the mud flows than from the steam blast, because the mud flows overcame, uh, uh, logging camps and, of course, uh, devastated houses. Six major bridges were washed, uh, six major watersheds, bridges were washed away. And then in the afternoon of May 18, especially, uh, when we got these energetic, uh, pulses, there were pyroclastic flow. How's that for a good, uh, a good word? and uh, i think that's greek pyroclastic okay can you figure out what that means and okay uh pyro means hot and clastic means broken hot broken rock in flows and then number 7 airfall tephra the during the nine hour eruption on may 18th uh the uh, the the rain of ballistic material and wind blown material all over the landscape May 18, 1980, total energy of the output of the volcano during the nine-hour eruption was 440 million tons of TNT energy. Okay, Um, 20 million tons of TNT energy in the initial steam explosion and then the continuing eruption, total energy output about 440 million tons of TNT blast energy. That's equivalent to 33,000... Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. That's an atomic bomb a second. Okay, there's 33,000 seconds in nine hours. So that's atomic bomb a second. Okay, that's what the volcano was doing. Okay, and that's just a small to average volcano in human history and experience. There have been a lot bigger volcanic eruptions. The eruption that made Yellowstone, okay, the uh, giant elliptical structure there with Yellowstone Lake, that Yellowstone Depression, that's an old collapsed volcano. Something like 2,500 cubic miles of material came out in that explosion. The volcano exploded, and then it collapsed into the eviscerated hole, and the collapse uh, created that caldera structure called uh, the Yellowstone Caldera. And what is that, 45 kilometers by something like that. Mud flows on six major rivers downstream. Here's a, a Mount Pinatubo mud flow that was videoed. We don't have a lot of video of the high-speed mud flows at Mount St. Helens. But uh, you see how this slurry flow occurs. Boy, was that interesting, okay, to the, the learning about and looking at the mud flow deposits at Mount St. Helens. Here's another view head-on of a mud flow. And, uh, these things move fast. Um, they deposit strata and, uh, mud flows fascinate me. I'm Man at comcast.net. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't want to, uh, get too technical on what's happening there. You have turbulent flow up front and laminar flow m- over through most of the, the, the flow. But they are uh, very erosive and can deposit re- very quickly. Okay, stratification formed rapidly. Uh, let's uh, look at uh, this. this is a, uh almost a Ripley's, believe it or not. The south end of Spirit Lake, the southwest corner there, southwest corner of Spirit Lake is the site of up to 600 feet of deposits, not just 200 feet underneath the lake now, but up to 600 feet out there. And uh that whole area has been intensely photographed, and we watched as a sequence of events occurred as the uh, the volcano produced that six hundred up to six hundred feet of strata and uh, that's especially the uh, action area and these These events called pyroclastic flows are to me one of the most interesting now what happened is the volcano essentially burped and as it it burps. It produces a whole bunch of volatile gas, and that that volatile steam entrains the particles, and the particles fall to the surface because it's a heavy slurry, like gas charge flow, and then it moves horizontally. And they move at 100 miles per hour of the land surface, pyroclastic flow. So if you want to uh, talk about volcanoes, pyroclastic flow is a good uh, uh, a good learning word okay anyway the pyroclastic flow here is one on uh, one of the uh, uh, Indonesian volcanoes here you see look what happens the the volcano kind of thrusts the gas out and the and then gravity takes over it becomes a gravity driven uh heavy high density flow but it's gas charged more geologists die in pyroclastic flows than in any other geologic disaster. Okay, because they're extremely uh, uh, ex- uh, extremely hot and unpredictable. In fact, I know a geologist who died in a pyroclastic flow. Uh, they're not uh, not a good thing to to have happen. Anyway, when the pyroclastic flow stops, you can see the uh, the the finger-like deposits that were that were accumulated. And the, they freeze rapidly, which is kind of cool. It loses its gas slurry and then it just freezes until you see the kind of deposit. In, and then we have cross-section because of erosion, and you can see some of the pyroclastic flow deposits. Here is over a 100-foot cliff through the... Uh, uh, deposits in the bottom of a big steam explosion pit. Here's the deposit from May 18, 1980. There's the airfall tephra debris from the afternoon of May 18, 1980. It's blocky. There's large particles in it and fine ash. Then above that May 18, 1980, the end of the nine-hour eruption deposit is this. Okay, Uh right here. See that right there? To right there that's about 25 feet in thickness that's the pyroclastic flow deposit of june 12th 1980 the pyroclastic flow deposit of june 12th 1980 and then above it is the mud flow deposit of march 19th 1982 so every layer at mount st helens has a date now take a look at that uh june 12th deposit the june 12th deposit formed in uh... About three hours between a 9 p.m. and midnight, according to the radar imagery of the summit, there was these pyroclastic flows over the top of the, uh, the landscape. And the pyroclastic flows made 25 feet thickness of strata in nine, in three hours. There you see the layered appearance. There you see, whoop, there you see the upper part of it. There's the upper part of it. Notice the, the layering or lamination. I had thought that a volcanic explosion and this kind of flow would deposit a mixed deposit you know coarse and fine all mixed together is it moving at a hundred miles per hour over the land surface what does it do it separates coarse and fine into thin strata and the closer you get to the June 12 1980 pyroclastic flow deposit the more layered it becomes okay and you just see the, the all this layering there even lamination of all things formed in a hurricane can you can you believe that um, and it, a gas charged fast moving hurricane is able to separate the the uh, grains coarse and fine here you see even this detailed lamination so the, that that fascinated me and uh, seeing rapidly formed strata in mount st helens challenged my way of thinking of strata elsewhere you know what I used to think? I used to think strata form slowly, like between summer and winter, between wet years and dry years, on the bank of a river, say, something like that. That's the way you might think about layering. But layering can form really fast, as, as this, uh, illustrates. And so Mount St. Helens helps us understand the sedimentary process that makes layering. And it could help us explain what is going on in Grand Canyon strata. Look at the layering there. There's a sandstone, the Tapete sandstone in the Grand Canyon. It's about 350 feet thick. It looks like it deposit, is deposited by some type of fast-flowing uh, liquid uh, medium. Okay, well, let's talk now about erosion features formed rapidly in Mount St. Helens. At Mount St. Helens, uh, we had mudflows and other energetic events that caused uh, strata to be gouged out on the north slope of the volcano. Here you see a canyon that was gouged out by mud after the summer of 1980. The mudflows came down in in the late uh, summer eruption, and they gouged out this canyon over 100 feet deep through solid rock. There's an ancient lava flow about the time of Christopher Columbus, um, there was a lava flow on the north side of the volcano. Okay, that was gouged out, and there's an ancient volcanic ash layer. And there's a small stream running through that valley. Do you think this small stream cut that canyon, uh, one sand grain at a time over immense periods of time? Uh, well, that might be the appearance. But we have the eyewitness reports of photographic documentation that, uh, it, this is, this is formed by uh mud and, and w- lots of water there's a deep canyon uh one place over 600 feet deep and uh, th- this canyon is eroded through ancient lava flow ancient volcanic uh landslide deposit ancient volcanic ash layer all that was gouged out after summer of 1980 then we had the mud flow of March 19 1982 there was a small little lava dome in the in the crater of Mount St. Helens behind that dome was a lake and that lake was displaced when uh, that eruption occurred on March 19 1982 it melted the snow in the crater and here you see the day after the mud has come down over the landscape it split most of the mud came down to the west down the uh, north fork of the Tootle River right here and that went through that big steam explosion pit and breached that uh, terrain and made that cliff so we could see some of the internal structure of the pyroclastic flow deposits uh, below and uh, this event March 19, 1982 reorganized the whole draining system especially of the north fork of the Tootle River the mud flow came out of the crater which is up there in the upper right And it came down the mud flow came right through here and then breached through this canyon right here, broke a barrier or dam, and then cut back a series, you know, series of waterfalls and made a whole new canyon system. Later that canyon was plugged by sediment and the the drainage rerouted itself over about two thousand meters south through a different terrain. And so this whole landscape has been radically altered since 1980. Remember the 600 feet of deposits, then the canyons, and then the canyon plugging and the readjustment. Here's where the breach occurred on March 19th, 1982. The mud came through and it overtopped the debris dam and then spilled out of the, the little basin that's formed and then it cut back in a waterfall kind of thing through this area. And right in here we have a miniature Grand Canyon sitting there. Plateau land north and south. uh, Snaky appearance. And so we call this little Grand Canyon of the North Fork of the Toodle River. And you can see the gully-headed side canyon. Gully-headed canyon right here. There's the gully-headed side canyon. And then here's the cup-shaped side canyon right there and right here. And you have the gully terrain uh, topography, like rill and gully topography. Looks some some very similar to uh, badlands of South Dakota, deserts of the southwestern United States. And, of course, you can see those rapidly formed strata in that little Grand Canyon right through here. So I lead hikes out there even now. Here's a little closer view of the... Flat plateau that was created by the mud flow. There's the mud flow, of March 19, 1982. There's the pyroclastic flow underneath it, and then down at the bottom is May 18, 1980, airfall tephra. And so that really is interesting. Every part of the landscape has a date, and that uh, that that's fascinating. And uh, just walking around out there, it's kind of like Disneyland for a catastrophist geologist like me. Okay, so <laughs> that's cool. And there's a stream running through the, the canyon. Okay, there's a small stream. Do you think that small stream eroded this 140-foot deep canyon, one sand grain at a time? It may appear that way, but we we, we know the, the history of this. Rapid erosion occurred at Mount St. Helens, and uh, the the primary excavation of these canyons occurred rapidly. There's a man for scale at the top of that cliff right there. See that? You can kind of see what that's like. And uh, it's not uh, powdered sugar anymore. That's standing up kind of in a cliff. You know, it's pretty well consolidated. And so there's some really good cliffs there. And there's a small stream, of course. Reminds me of Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is what? One of the world's most impressive canyons. It's uh four to eighteen miles wide. it's uh, a mile deep, and it's uh, about two sixty miles in length. So the Grand Canyon is uh, forty times bigger than the uh, little Grand Canyon at Mount St helen's and, and, and it's interesting, but it looks like there was a lake that was formed on the eastern side of the grand canyon with an elevation of about 6000 feet up against the north and south rim of the grand canyon which were connected by strata through what's now the channel of the colorado river it looks like that lake overtopped the barrier the kaibab upwarp right here and notched through and cut the grand canyon that's uh the overtopping theory, which has become popular among geologists now. Most geologists have jumped the idea that Colorado River eroded the Grand Canyon over tens of millions of years. Isn't that incredible? What I learned in grammar school, that Colorado River cut Grand Canyon, is uh, generally dismissed by geologists, and they're going to weird, kind of catastrophic ways to form Grand Canyon. And... Um, uh, here we have a lake, 500 cubic miles of water in an ancient lake here. The lake evidence is sitting there next to the gash that formed the Grand Canyon. It almost seems like a smoking gun at the scene of a crime. An eight, uh, uh, 500 cubic miles of water at 6,000 feet elevation has a huge amount of power. And that could notch and, and spill the, the canyon. There's other evidences of a lake up in northern, uh, uh, um, Northern Arizona, nor- extreme northeastern Arizona, in the Canyonlands area, in uh, southern Utah, and over into Colorado. There's probably a thousand cubic miles of water in that lake. If there was a lake here in uh, eastern northeastern Arizona, I call it Hopi Lake. Uh, the other lakes uh, would be there, and so uh, we could have a thousand, five hundred, two thousand cubic miles of water in lakes at six thousand feet elevation, on the terrain. And uh, Grand Canyon could be the result of catastrophic drainage of lakes there 's uh, evidence in in um, Washington state of a great scablands flood from Lake Missoula and Montana. Lake Missoula and Montana was five hundred cubic miles of water. It drained over the scablands in Eastern Washington and produced Grand Coulee. Grand Coulee is a trench fifty miles long. Um, hundreds of feet uh, deep, and uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a, uh, 50 cubic miles of erosion there. So uh, Grand Canyon, 900 cubic miles of erosion to produce just the canyon profile. Could that have formed catastrophically by drainage of lakes? It uh, looks that way. Okay, let's talk about logs and log deposits at Mount St. Helens, especially at Spirit Lake. I was sitting down uh, next to the lake eating my lunch one day when uh, the wind kind of blew in some sticks and you see those four sticks, the four sticks here, there's one right there, there's one right here, one right there and one right there and there's another fifth one right here. Anyway, um, they floated in and it was kind of interesting. They're not prone floating, they are upright floating sticks. And then they got grounded in the in the shallow water area and just stood there. And as I was thinking about the sticks floating like that, I thought, "How about the logs in Spirit Lake? You know, there's a gigantic log mat in the lake that was formed by that colossal water wave, 860 foot high wave of water that that uh, devastated the north slope of the uh, uh, north, north area of the volcano." Could that, could those logs also float in the lake, prone, and then go into upright floating position? You see this idea of upright floating log? That was the hypothesis I was thinking about as, as I was eating my lunch, thinking about those sticks. Well, prone floating logs on the lake, there's a million, there was a million logs the day after the eruption floating on the lake it was hard to see the lake. In fact, the people that first saw the lake said the lake was gone because they all they could see was the, the logs laying on top of the lake. OK, the logs could go in upright floating position, I thought to myself. And then what could happen? The root end is weighted down is heavy. The upper part of the log is uh, what? Uh, floatable. There could be roots and even root ball on the logs, and so they would tend to float upright. Then I thought, whoop, then that would float back to, uh, it could float down to the bottom of the lake and become an upright deposited log. Did you see that, uh, that idea? And then what could happen? Well, sedimentation is occurring rapidly because erosion is going on all around the lake. So the logs could land in vertical position on the bottom of the lake at different times and have their root ends buried at different levels in the bottom of the lake. Do you see, do you see what I was thinking about there? There you see the lake, okay, covered with logs. Uh, amazing thing. And there's the, the logs over at one end of the lake. Slight lowering of the lake level has inclined the logs, but there was a whole f- whole f- forest that was kind of replanted over there in the shallow water area. How would we verify that logs are floating upright, getting buried on the bottom of the lake? The way we would do that is with sonar. And so we got a sonar recorder in the boat. There's the sonar recorder. Here are the automobile batteries that power the sonar. And here's the sonar tow fish. You lower that over the side of the boat, and it sends out the sonar ping that reads the profile of the lake. Here's the record coming back from the uh, the sonar. There you see the sound source position, okay, Uh, And then you can see open water below the towfish, down, oh, that must be 50 to 100 feet of water there. And there's the first reflection from the bottom of the lake. And then the bottom of the lake shows you this. Look at this. There's something upright standing there, sonar reflector. There's a sonar reflector, slightly inclined. And then look behind it. It seems to have a sonar shadow. Here's this one. Look at it. It has a sonar shadow behind it. That's about 50 yards long cast over the bottom of the lake. So, uh, that, that's a pretty good size, uh, reflector standing up. Look at this. It almost looks, looks like the stump of a giant log sitting there even without flaring root mass. And here's the sonar reflection or sonar reflection from it sanding off the bottom we had contacts with uh, hundreds of upright objects when we did the sonar survey survey and, and ex- extrapolating to the whole bottom of the lake we estimate something like 10,000 upright logs were on the bottom of spirit lake when we did the sonar survey what would the bottom of spirit lake look like if you drained it it would look like a forest but the forest didn't grow there what it was replanted there and the replanted forest idea is really kind of a radical uh, thought, isn't it? How would we verify that logs are really floating like that and uh, landing upright? So we needed to go scuba diving. There I am on the right there, and there in my diving buddy on the left and we're getting ready to uh, to, uh, to do scientific diving. Uh, it's kind of cool uh, being uh, in a dive shot next to an active volcano back there uh yeah that that's uh <laughs> yeah that 's cool, okay, just long as it doesn 't erupt, okay, and we 're thinking oh, if it does erupt we 're in good shape we can we're we 're in this giant mass of water and we 're breathing compressed air and uh so yeah so, uh, so here we are with an upright object uh upright log standing there there 's a steaming lava dome in the background, okay, we did have an eruption one time. But, uh, there I am, there's my diving buddy, and here, we're, here we are. And, uh, underneath the log mat, we dove under that, and that's a, and that's an interesting, uh, kind of dive situation. But you're looking up at the logs above you, and do you notice something about the logs? No bark. Okay, and those are, those, some of those are six foot diameter, uh, Douglas fir trees. Underneath the log mat, looking out horizontally, you can see the upright floaters hanging down from the log mat. There's uh, three of them or so in there, and this big one in the foreground. And uh, that is uh, that, that shows you that this hypothesis is right. And, of course, on the bottom of the lake where the sonar said they would be, we found the upright deposited logs sitting there. There's a base of a trunk of a tree that's landed right in here, Here's an upright floater, and there's an up, uh, landed on the bottom, and there's another upright one standing on the bottom. Uh, one of these logs we could get on one side, my diving buddy, and we could, we could, we could dislodge it. It had recently landed. Another one we looked at had been solidly embedded, maybe three feet in sediment in the bottom of the lake. That proves that the logs drop out at different times where the root ends buried at different strata layer levels. Are you with me? Uh, what that, uh, and, uh, it looks like the noble fir fell out first. Then the, uh, uh, and the cedar and the Douglas fir, those logs are falling out later. And so it's a species stratified deposit on the bottom of the lake. Uh, one time we set out a, uh, a grid and a log, a, a 10 foot diameter Douglas fir landed in vertical position, right in the middle of our area. Look at the outflaring root mass. The the roots penetrate out four or five feet from the base of the trunk in some cases, but they can they can float upright without any root material. There's a sign at Yellowstone National Park. It was a sign, uh, northeastern Yellowstone, a place called Specimen Ridge, and uh, the uh, it's called the fossil forest, the Specimen Ridge. Here's what the sign said. Across the valleys rise the slopes of specimen ridge, but the forest you see there today is only the latest chapter in a remarkable story. Buried within the volcanic rocks that compose the mountain are 27 distinct layers of fossil forest that flourished 50 million years ago. And the right side of the sign shows it even more detail. Yellowstone's fossil forests are unique, Uh, Many stumps still stand upright in the same sites where they grew millions of years ago, okay? And 27 different layers with vertical penetrating stumps has been said to be proof of what? Immense periods of time in the strata record. And and, uh, and there was a sign. uh, One day I called up... um, Yellowstone and I I was talking to the rangers and I talked to the chief interpretive ranger which is the gatekeeper okay somebody who 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 manages uh, the you know the educational experience at Yellowstone and I said what about that sign there at Specimen Ridge and then um, the late this lady ranger said wow, that sign has become very controversial. You can't find two geologists that even agree on the content of that sign. And uh, so I said, well, are, are you interested in what may have caused the controversy surrounding this sign? It happens to be about St. Helens, so I'll send you some reprints. And uh, the next thing I know, the sign is retired, gone, okay? And uh, no sign is replacing it. Okay, it's just disappeared. And, uh, anyway, what do you, what do you say about that? Somebody, uh, you know, uh, can talk to a gatekeeper and impact things. Okay, there it is. There's Specimen Ridge, and you see the volcanic strata, and in those volcanic strata is where you find these upright, petrified logs, petrified uh, conifers in standing position. What more natural interpretation to say, there is the modern forest growing there today. Here's the ancient forest, or what? Series of forests, which grew over millions of years. Are you with me on that? Can okay, we dug out the roots of some of these trees? The, the roots often terminate uh, around the base of the trunk of the tree, don't go out very far, and, and they abruptly terminate. They don't taper to a point and uh, they're not rooted in soil they're rooted in uh, rocky sandy material and so it looks like these logs uh, are something different than the petrified forest so one time we we thin sectioned the wood from strata from the tr- petrified logs that grew at different levels we thin sectioned the wood from two different levels we found the same correlating tree ring sequence at uh logs with di- buried at different levels. What does that prove? The log grew the logs grew at the same time. Okay, and so it really gets uh really gets fascinating when you look at this. It looks like a whole bunch of mud flows were involved with depositing these logs, sweeping them along and probably into clear water and then they sank in this uh muddy medium. Okay, let's talk about peat deposits of Spirit Lake, and then uh, I'll conclude here. Uh, coal is that hard, black, compact rock formed uh, by plant material. And I remember as a kid thinking about the plants that contributed to make coal. And uh, later uh, I went on and did a Ph.D. dissertation on the origin of a coal bed in Kentucky. But uh, the block of coal, this is a Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh coal, you can see these glassy bands that run through the coal. And you see the layered appearance of the coal? Generally layered appearance? That's caused by sheets of tree bark in there. Under the microscope, you can see the cell structure of the bark of the wood. And then the other finer material is in between the bark sheets, and it makes kind of a coffee grounds to bark sheet kind of appearance. And uh, that's, uh, th- that's what uh, the general appearance of coal is. And the the thought has been that the plant material that accumulated uh, to make the coal was accumulated in swamps over long periods of time you 've heard of the the swamp explanation for the origin of coal uh, yeah it 's been in uh, grammar school uh, textbooks even well anyway, the idea is that the 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 antiseptic waters of the swamp prevented complete bacterial decay. The plant material that fell in was uh, um, uh degraded but it made a, a thick spongy layer of peat and that 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 accumulated slowly like a thousand years per inch the peat formed and that was later buried to form the coal bed and uh that's a swamp theory for the origin of coal take a look at a drained swamp deposit along the coast of Nova Scotia you can see that uh that the peat material and you see what appear to be um, um, to be um, branches hanging out of the deposit what are those those are roots and um, swamp peats are intensely root penetrated and they create this rather homogenous fine texture that is diagnostic of a swamp peat but there's no bark sheets in there okay well one day uh the day before christmas 1978 I was taking a bath, uh, playing with some soap suds on the tub and thinking about this problem of all those bark sheets in the coal bed I'm studying in Kentucky and all of the roots that make this uh, uh, material, and I was thinking about that, this idea of a floating mat came to my mind, the floating mat model for the origin of coal bed. I imagined that the plant material floated free of the bottom of the lake, uh, or the ocean in this case, and that the plant material was in a, some kind of mat, and the logs and the, and the, the woody material of the mat rubbed against itself, and it peeled off the bark, and deposited a peat layer underneath the floating log mat rapidly, and then the floating log mat moved away, and then it Stop making, uh, the plant material that later became coal. That was, uh, um, that was 1978, uh, uh, December 1978. Uh, I went on to write chapter 7 of my PhD dissertation on the floating log mat model for the origin of coal. And, uh, that was, uh, um, Ba- based on some rather abstract thinking, bathtub modeling, if you will. OK, and um, I, it was an analogy that, that uh, I had proposed. In August of 1979, I defended my PhD dissertation at Penn State University on the floating log map model for the original coal. What happened 10 months later? Mount St. Helens exploded. And made Spirit Lake into a gigantic bathtub covered with logs, uh, I went to a good Calvinist uh, theologian uh, very quickly uh, d James Kennedy you know and oh it was interesting so I, so I talked to him about Providence and all I think yes, God causes the affairs of man and nature to cross okay well anyway, here I am looking at a bathtub covered with logs. Okay, and uh, so I now you know why I had to go diving in Spirit Lake. Okay, and uh very uh, interesting thing. Notice something about the surface of the lake? No bark. Yeah, the bark is gone. Where did it go? Okay, uh, think about it. Okay, it sank to the bottom very quickly and formed a bark sheet-dominated peat deposit on the bottom of the lake. What would happen if we had an ongoing, uh, catastrophe that could bury the bottom of the lake? That peak could be squeezed and made into something like coal. We may have seen the first step for the formation of the coal bed in the bottom of Spirit Lake. And, uh, that is, uh, that's, that's real interesting to think about that. Okay, well, I've talked a little bit about coal formation. How about life flourishing in the blast zone after Mount St. Helens? Okay, uh, After Mount St. Helens, the uh, landscape was uh, sterilized by the intense heat. But then look what happened. Plant material quickly came back. In fact, when I was out there looking at the new canyons and the pyroclastic flows, there were biology professors walking around, and what were they doing? They were in awe because they were seeing how fast the ecosystem was recovering. And uh here's a, a lake and around this small little lake that survived the eruption. Look at all the seedling conifers that are growing back. Uh that was just uh two years after the eruption, and then uh but now there's a full forest with twenty foot, twenty five foot tall conifers growing there, still growing. And um this amazing thing, sterile volcanic ash, could allow the, the growth of all these plants and then not only the plants but the animals and the elk they uh come into the blast zone because of what why do the elk come into the blast zone uh, are are they uh, trying to experience the uh, volcano uh, what well, i don't know they they see a lot of grass look at the look at all the grass around it's a, a an ideal pasture land for the elk in fact, there are more elk per square mile in the blast zone than there are in the forest around the blast zone. What is that telling you? These animals have an, a tremendous adaptation for uh, going into a new landscape and, and, and living on it. Now, uh, we had all of the biologists were telling us that, that these elk are going to overheat because they can't find shade in the blast zone okay and we discovered something they have a cooling behavior they when they get hot they just lay down in wet soil and they cool themselves and they're doing fine in the blast zone okay and uh, so isn't that interesting okay what 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 do you think is could be the application for something like this how about rapid ecosystem recovery after the flood and the dispersal of animals out of the ark uh so these animals have mysterious uh, behaviors that allow them to do whatever they do really well and elk seem to understand uh, the habitat now what they discovered something else interesting is that the elk in the blast zone are having more triplets and twins than the elk outside of the blast zone and the elk are and, and some of the other animals sense that there's space and resources there, and so that somehow, however that happens, um, they're taking advantage of it. Okay, conclusion. You know, the, the humanist, the person who believes that he's the master of his own destiny and control of everything around him, there's the humanist uh, uh, sitting there thinking about and watching the volcanic eruption. The humanist is humbled because there is power, none under man's control. Who is in control? God is in control. Psalm 104, verse 32, He touches the mountains and they smoke. He just looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountain with a little finger, 400 million tons of TNT blast energy, a little finger. So Mount St. Helens is a and and Mount Saint Helens just a small to average volcano from the standpoint of human history and experience been a lot bigger volcanoes so uh w- uh w- in size and scale we we see this event occurring and we were powerless to do or change anything if i think about my the volcano i think about my ordinary experience you know if you were to come to me before the volcano exploded in 1980 and said oh we're going to make uh, thin strata layers by a high-velocity, 100-mile-per-hour current sweeping over the landscape, I would have thought, hmm, probably not. Uh, you know, we have other ways to think about strata. Or if you would have come to me before the eruption and said the volcano is going to explode and cause mud flows and other energetic process to cut canyons up to 100 feet deep through solid rock, uh, I would have... Uh, 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 said, well, probably not. And then, if you would have come to me and said that logs are going to fall out in standing position, having the uh, the appearance of being multiple forests buried in uh, different strata layers, I would have thought you were visionary, because those things can't be th- thought of in in our, our our conventional way of thinking. Before the eruption, there was one thing I might have agreed with you about. What? That plant material could be deposited underneath floating log mats because on the basis of, of looking at a coal bed in Kentucky, I was thinking that way. What did I learn at the volcano? Get a PhD in sedimentary geology. Okay. I'm walking around out there. God specializes in what? Doing things that I think are impossible. Okay. Do you have something in your life you think is impossible? Okay. Uh, God, God has amazing ways of doing things. That's uh, and that's what it's Disneyland out there as you as you look at the landscape. Remember Harry Truman? Uh, those of you who go back that uh, to that era. He he was on his lodge was on the south shore Spirit Lake, and he and his lodge were buried under 200 feet of of uh, landslide material, and then some volcanic ash came on the top, and then the lake was up over his lodge he died on the morning of may 18th he didn't think that the volcano was going to explode like that and he died okay um harry truman is kind of stands for western civilization man doesn't he you know we we uh, uh we we ignore the warning we think we're secure but uh he died he failed to heed the warning the government came to him and said please leave and uh, he failed to heed the warning and he and he died in in the volcanic eruption so mount st helens exploded on may 18 1980 produces a uh, colossal uh, laboratory for the study of catastrophe theory I believe that the eruption of Mount St. Helen's is, is the geologic event of the twentieth century, and we'll, now that we're looking back on the twentieth century and ask what was going on geologically to uh, uh radically alter this evolutionary thinking that we got going around uh, around us, this is really a big event, and uh it's uh it, it's an amazing laboratory isn't it? Or, uh, there's, there it is from space. You're looking out at the, the landscape. There's the crater over there and there's the new uh, formed uh, drainage. There's a lake with, there's a lake with, uh, a, a little bit of log material on it now. Half the logs have been deposited. And then here is the North Fork of the Tootle, New Tootle River. It's, uh, it's an amazing place. It's a Rosetta Stone, isn't it? The key thought is Rosetta Stone. There was an extraordinary artifact that's been found. It, there was a suppressed language. The suppressed language is called what? Catastrophism. Okay. It was suppressed by what? The uniformitarian orthodoxy that was all around us. And uh, the clues deciphered a new field of knowledge. Okay. Okay. That's the way I think you want to think about Mount St. Helens. It is a new field of knowledge. It's a, it's a wonderland for catastrophe theory and thinking. Mount St. Helens, Rosetta Stone. Speak to the earth and it will teach you. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. Psalm 46. Uh, those, those are some good Good verses. Okay, I got time for questions. Okay, we got to get that um, microphone out to you.
2: Herman.
1: Thank you very much. What do non believing geologists say about the new field of knowledge? <laughs>
0: Yeah, since 1980, Mount St. Helens uh, and catastrophic geology have flourished. Okay, geologists saw this happen, okay, and uh, on the fifth anniversary of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, I was asked to speak at the Canadian Society of Petroleum Geology in uh, Calgary, Alberta, and uh, there was a 1,000 geologists, and they wanted to know what was going on at Mount St. Helens, and I happened to be there at their meeting, and uh, so I told them. At the end of the presentation, the convener got back up and said, we need to introduce catastrophe theory back into geology. Okay, why was uh, that kind of statement uttered? Because Darwinism has caused what? All of this to be shoved under the rug okay and it needs to be brought out and so catastrophe theory is now back into geology in a major way now when i was uh... in the seventies no way would they tolerate this kind of thinking okay for some reason i was able to get my phd dissertation through the committee with with a wild idea right okay now uh... i am tolerated Okay tolerated by uh, the establishment geologists in fact uh, there are geologists around that are coming around saying to me steve you're doing good work keep it up they're encouraging me to 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 think outside the box like i've been doing for so long so that's the what what do uh geologists say about it and and that is that that's interesting really uh re, really interesting and uh isn't that a fun thing to see happen Because we we thought that that Darwinism was going to take over, and now Darwinism is becoming really uh, almost passe because it's really not doing much in geology anymore. So that's that's thinking. And, of course, age of the earth is questioned and that kind of thing. Geologists still haven't come at that too much. Okay, question.
1: Dr. Austin, thank you uh, for this presentation. Simple question. That water that you're diving in, is that... (laughs) Fresh water, salt water, hot, cold, acidic, basic, just a,
0: All of the above. Just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, we noticed as we were diving uh, that we would go certain directions and it was warmer water over there. But the bottom of the lake was uh, 45 degree water. You notice we were bundled up in those uh, full wetsuits. Uh, half inch of foam around, so that's for, and, and that was rather comfortable to be diving in that kind of water. Uh, the water, when we originally went diving, we were the first ones to dive in Spirit Lake. Okay, and they, t- they told, they, they have all of the, uh, the, all this paperwork you fill out. Uh, it, it, you're going into a volcanic zone. The United States government has no uh, obligation at all to even rescue you. You are signing your life away. And then it says Spirit Lake has been uh, documented to contain Legionella bacteria and uh, all that kind of stuff. We were we were t- we were thinking about it. we're aspirating water with Legionella bacteria in it, are we going to get sick, uh, you know, that kind of thing. We didn't get sick. Uh, the bottom of the lake is like iced tea, and it's, uh, um, if you're interested in, in diving conditions, it's kind of cool. The upper 15 feet of the lake is very clear water. It has oxygen in it. Down below about 15 feet, you go through a thermocline, and you can feel the, the temperature drop from over uh, 60 at the surface down to 50 or 40 down at depth. and uh, But then what happens is you fall into that oxygen water, and it's, it's kind of like you're in a funnel. So you're looking up above you, all around you can see light, and then you fall into this funnel. All of a sudden, the funnel, the light closes up like this, and bam, you're in total darkness. And then down at the bottom of the lake, we brought down lights to see... You know, we're bumping into trees and things like that on the bottom. It was, it was difficult dive, dive conditions. So that's, uh, that's what the, the lake was like. And, uh, yes, there were hot springs, quicksand pits, all kinds of things. Yes. Is that Charlie back there? Okay.
1: Steve, that was a great presentation. And I think as we reflect on what you said, this is an eloquent example of the limitations of empiricism because where empiricism which is the kind of the overall philosophy of a lot of people is always contingent on the next piece of data and look at what a difference a whole chunk of data made in in people revising their whole view so this is an eloquent example of a epistemological weakness in empiricism and i also wanted to thank you for the fact that you were bold enough to speak to the establishment. Yes. And so many of us are so passive that we, we, you know, Jesus is going to come tomorrow, so why bother? And the fact that you stood up and you conveyed these things to the geologists, that's what we all need to do as the Lord gives us uh, things in our own areas.
0: Yeah. And so I, uh, um, yeah, the elephant and the refrigerator kind of thing. Uh, I uh, think of David, uh, um, (laughs) David King of Israel, he encountered the giant right and then he he saw the elephant but then he looked in the refrigerator and he saw uh, what the elephant wasn't doing and he realized that he told himself stories about uh, how his slingshot could take out uh, you know a lion and a bear and so, why not this big philistine? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, that's uh, that, that's it. Okay. And so, I would encourage you to get to know gatekeepers and, and talk to people about these things because it should be obvious. Uh, you know, they're they're responsible. They should be responsible, and they should have integrity and be able to comprehend uh, different outside the box points of view. So, go ahead. Okay, right there.
1: There's a uh, mountain just west of uh, Bend, Oregon. Uh, I think it's South Sisters that they keep saying is growing. It's uh, bulging in one section. I wondered if you knew about that and if you're kind of got your thumb on or the finger on it, you know. Uh,
0: I've heard of that about it, but uh bulging mountains don't uh alarm me sometimes. Uh uh, like uh, the, some other people, but but uh, Mount St. Helens sw- had swollen 400 feet. Is this gone? How much is it swollen? I think they're talking about a couple inches, right? Yeah. yeah. Two, inches yeah. A um, two inches a year. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, Clyde. Um,
1: the, the deep uh, canyons or valleys that were carved out, uh, it w- was – like from the bottom to the top was that existing rock that was there that that was carved out, or is some of that height, mud deposits, and things all like of that?
0: all of the low land of that big valley, all of that is landslide debris that didn't exist that was sky in nineteen eighty okay okay and uh del tackett uh del tackett and i may, are making a movie. Uh, he's interviewing me about Mount St. Helens, and so we're we're wandering around out in the middle of this uh, terrain, and he, the, the the video comes on. Uh, hey, my dad took me uh, by horse out to this uh, terrain, and uh, it looks like it, you know. And then uh, he he talked. He, you see the stream flowing through the canyon. Dell says, "Oh, uh, it looks like that canyon was eroded over long periods of time." And then. Uh, then he then he comes on and says but I was wrong this whole landscape right here is younger than I am okay and uh, in the, in the, the, then the, um, the 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 view per perspective pulls away and you see him at the base of Mount st. Helen's it's kind of a, a cool thing a lot, of the,
1: the, a lot of the walls that you see in the Grand Canyon uh, that wouldn't necessarily have, that would not have been pre-existing rock. It would have just been
0: Could it be sediment, out. poorly yeah. consolidated right. sediment? And then yes. something
1: came and washed it out. you know a, a good portion of it away. In, in other words, it, it could happen rather quickly as opposed to over millions of years.
0: Yeah. Uh, how long would it take uh, 500 cubic miles of water to drain down a spillway? We can actually calculate the velocity in the spillway. So we can calculate the volume. How long it would take? A couple of weeks for it to drain 500 cubic miles of water through the through the canyon. So the uh, the Grand Canyon doesn't take millions of years. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed uh, talking to you.
2: Many times, as I hear you go over that, it just—it's always something new, and you always pick up something new. There's so much data there, especially for those of us with no science background. Okay, so we learn a lot. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer, and then one reminder that tomorrow morning we start. Uh, opening announcements and prayer will be about 8:15. First session will be part two of what Ray Mondragon's. Uh, talk about the Tower of Babel and the evidence of early culture, which I think is extremely important to understand that we're sort of degenerating rather than evolving. And then uh, we'll go on for there. Uh, Remember to pray for David Roseland. David's supposed to speak tomorrow afternoon about the theological method of uh, John Nelson Darby and he apparently has got some kind of upper respiratory infection, ear infection, something like that. So um, I know he's trying to rest tonight and be ready for tomorrow, so keep him in prayer. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the impact that Steve has had. Thank you for his ability to clearly communicate these uh, complicated issues to us that we might understand and be encouraged, uh, further evidence of not only catastrophism but also of a worldwide flood. Father we pray for David we pray that uh, he'll be uh, recovered overnight that he'll feel better tomorrow and that you will allow his body to rest and recover as he as he sleeps tonight and father we pray all these things in Christ's name amen